and the laughter, a note of seriousness. They're watching Peter Casson, who has proved the power of hypnotic suggestion to be well beyond dispute. The reactions of his subjects are genuine, as he now demonstrates the power of post-hypnotic or delayed action suggestion. Whenever you hear the tune, so tired played, you just carefully go to sleep. The small wonder that, on waking, the subject looks surprised, for he knows nothing of the orders he has memorized. If he ever sees this film, he will still know nothing, for he will fall asleep whenever this tune is played. and they awake without sign of distress. It's good, clean fun. But stage hypnotism is not without its critics. There are those who argue that its use should be confined to the surgeries of trained medical men. To show you the more serious side of hypnotism, we take you to a consulting room to see how it can be applied to psychological problems. In a very different role, we again meet Peter Kasson. You are going deeper and deeper to sleep. Very deeper to sleep. Just relax and go deep to sleep. You are now a child of six once again. The patient is harassed by an instinctive fear of dental treatment that amounts almost to terror. Now the hypnotic treatment begins. You are six. Come on. Tell me about Nanny. What did she look like? She was tall. Had black hair. Did you like her? She went away. Tell me more. Mummy said it was... Hypnotism is serving as a shortcut to mental depths which a psychiatrist might need many long hours to reach. As she peels from her memory the layers of suppression which have thickened through the years, the hypnotist is able to get to the root of her troubles. That seems a little peculiar. Are you sure she had her teeth out? It sounds as though she died. Or... Tell me about it. Come and tell me everything. And you associate... Some of the details are personal. But already the cause of her phobia is becoming clear as her mind surrenders its burden in that strange, dark sleep. Yes, that's it. Now you're feeling quite peaceful and calm. Completely relaxed. I'm not at all worried about having your teeth out anymore. Now... I wanted to wake up, feeling fit and well, quite happy, gay and full of life, thoroughly refreshed. So, wake up now. Come on, wake up. Wide awake. Hello. I've been to sleep. You've not only been to sleep, you've been back to when you were a child of six. <laughs> six. Yes, and you've been telling me all about what was the cause of this fear of dentists.
Gosh here. Listener, are your psychic self-defense systems operable? Are you ready to break into Dr. Murray's Harvard Psychology Clinic and rescue the poor hypnotherapized veterans therein? Are you ready to bust down the doors of St. John's Orphan Asylum and free the dissociated orphans from the clutches of the mad Dr. Estabrooks. We'll continue with this line of inquiry that has us hitting the veritable stacks today, chasing down modern-day mass hypnosis and micro-mind-controls ancestors in World War I-era hypnotherapy and veteran organizations like the American Legion. Although we'll be concluding the William Dudley Pelly saga soon enough, this episode will be a little light on the wannabe American Fuhrer side in large part because we'll be turning our attention towards Europe more and more over these next few installments, working our way up to Hitler's hypnosis and juxtaposing our investigations into the hypnotizing of American World War I veterans with their German equivalents. Speaking of which, Interestingly enough, Hitler and a figure that I'm about to introduce were both gassed in the same area in Belgium during the quote-unquote Great War. I'm referring to OSS and MKUltra hypnotist, psychologist, and longtime Colgate University faculty member George H. Estabrooks. 
their respective inhalation of chemical weaponry most likely occurred on different dates, but it appears, at the very least, that they both suffered complications from gas exposure in or near to the same place, a Western Front battleground in Ypres, Belgium. I was having the hardest time relocating the quote that brought my attention to this quasi-synchronicity, but I finally found it. Quoting from Colin Ross's The CIA Doctors regarding the end of Estabrooks's World War I service, quote, He was in the German gas attack at Ypres. While participating in a gas attack drill behind lines, he was exposed to mustard gas because of a tear in his mask. This almost killed him and eventually resulted in his being sent back to Canada. He developed tuberculosis and spent time in two TB sanitaria, one of them in Switzerland. There, he met his future wife, the daughter of a Swiss watchmaker, whom he married in Rome 12 years later on July 20th, 1933, end quote. and Hitler both experienced the horrors of chemical warfare in the same area in Belgium. If I'm understanding Ross correctly, though, in the Estabrooks incident, George was a victim of mustard gas-friendly fire and equipment malfunction contrary to an enemy gassing. My hunch is that both men were hypnotized during their recovery. I'm more confident in Hitler's case, as the evidence supporting his hypnosis by Dr. Edmund Forster appears more compelling. In Estabrooks, I've found numerous references to him becoming interested in hypnosis following the military accident that brought his tour to a premature close, which seems to indicate a connection there. I've yet to find definitive record of it, though. But before we continue, it's spiel time. Reminder to subscribe to Parapower Mapping on Patreon to gain access to the full version of this episode. Additional reminder that there's still time to sign up for a free trial and get a cue or research clue in for the very first Cues and Clues EP. I'm already working on a couple prompts with some stalwart uh, para-power mappers, and let me tell you, we've got some bangers on the way. So you better act fast. What are you waiting for? Seriously. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? That's right. You're 
right arm is relaxing. Your fingers are growing sleepy. They feel as light as a ten set of hummingbirds, just like pure air. The rest of you is growing lighter and lighter. You can't wake up now. Your hand is reaching in your pocket. It's pulling out your phone. It's pulling out your wallet. You're going to patreon.com slash capital P A R A capital P O W E R capital M A P P I N G. And you're choosing subscribe. You're entering your card information if necessary. And now you're listening to PPM on repeat 24 hours, 8 days a week. Let's get those listener numbers through the roof. LFG. Did I do it? Are you hypnotized? Okay, you can wake up now. <laughs> Just kidding, listener. Old Clonny would never do you dirty like that. This is a strictly anti-hypnotic zone here. I mean, come on, the show's catchphrase is literally stay critical critters. So don't you worry. Let's talk a bit about the man, G.H. Estabrooks, shall we? This 32nd degree Freemason and Templar really was the archetypal American hypno-fascist. And to think that he would go on to use the same methodologies he publicly formulated during World War II to program enemy agents into single-blinded hypno-moles for the CIA a decade later. Canadian-born, Estabrooks grew up in St. John, New Brunswick. The son of a steamboat captain, in the years after World War I, he would become a naturalized American citizen. Legend has it that at the age of 19, he was the youngest commissioned officer in the 1st Canadian Division, which brings us to the previously mentioned gas attack. The story goes that, following his exposure and the TB that arose from complications caused by his condition, George became interested in hypnosis. Of course, just like Langer and other figures, historical and fictional, that we'll discuss in these episodes. My guess is that Estabrooks himself was likely hypnotized in an allied hospital. After his recovery from chemical warfare-induced tuberculosis, if that's a phrase, he enrolled first at Acadia University, where he became president of the student body and the local YMCA. There it is again, 
The Young Men's Christian Association shadows our investigation into the intersections of hypnotherapy and fascism every step of the way from W.D. Pelly in Siberia to Estabrooks in Canada. Quote, His record at Acadia won him a Rhodes Scholarship, and he studied anthropology and education at Oxford and Exeter, 1921-24. to in 1926, he was awarded the Ph.D. from Harvard. His dissertation, done under E.A. Houghton and William McDougall, was entitled Racial Intelligence. End quote. Who'd guess that a Rhodes Scholar might turn out to be sus as fuck? Estabrooks is yet another node in the interlocking nexus of hypnotherapy, veterans' orgs, Massachusetts higher education, and American fascism. Also, I think I keep foreshadowing them and accidentally keep putting off their planned introduction, but note that Estabrooks's tenure at Harvard likely overlapped with Murray and or Langer even if they weren't at Harvard at exactly the same time. Their respective stints were definitely close. I checked, and it looks like Estabrooks received his doctorate the same year that Murray was hired as Morton Prince's assistant following the opening of the Harvard Psychological Clinic. I have to do some further digging to confirm it, but I'm also pretty sure that this McDougall, Estabrook's dissertation supervisor, also figures into the Murray and Langer stories. This is probably as good a point as any to insert a bit of info about the psych clinic where hypnotherapy was practiced on World War I veterans, and its formation. Dr. Henry Murray started at the Harvard Psychological Clinic under Morton Prince in 1926. He was first set up with the full-time assistantship via L.J. Henderson, before eventually succeeding Prince as director, at which point Langer was hired on as assistant, following the dissolution of his School for Troubled Boys, which we'll get to. Prince was known for his work on hypnosis, and had even taken his mother to Salpetriere in the previous century, where he observed Dr. Charcot, another major hypnotherapy practitioner, if I remember correctly. Further underlining our quick stopover in Massachusetts, guess which families the president of Harvard in 1926 hailed from? Both the Lowells and Lawrences, of course. 
It's also important to know that the Harvard Psych Clinic already had $140,000 in financing prior to its approval by the university. A handsome sum back then. Evidently, the clinic invited a fair bit of controversy among other members of the faculty. An interesting anecdote regarding the controversy over President A. Lawrence Lowell's unilateral approval of the formation of the clinic and its placement within the psych and philosophy department is the fact that Alfred North Whitehead was uneasy about the prospect of having the clinic on campus as he thought hypnosis was dangerous. Whitehead's uneasiness comes across as all the more prophetic when you think about the kinds of shitty, MKUltra human experiments Dr. Henry Murray would be getting up to just a few decades later. Henry A. Murray, after receiving his medical degree at Columbia University and PhD at Cambridge University, embarked on one of the most diverse, interesting, and creative careers currently represented in the membership of the American Psychological Association. His shift in interest from medicine to biochemistry to psychology are all reflected in his unique contributions to the understanding of human personality. Among his many contributions, his 1938 book entitled Explorations in Personality, his development of the widely used projective measure of personality, the thematic apperception test, his unique analyses of Herman Melville and Moby Dick, all are examples of historical contributions of an unusually creative quality. His association with individuals such as Morton Prince at Harvard and Carl Jung in Zurich enriched his own perspective and thus the field of the psychology of personality. Currently a professor emeritus at Harvard University, he is still actively involved in an exciting program of research, writing, and lecturing, and remains in touch with Harvard's historically significant psychological clinic, which he directed for so many years. It was to us a privilege to conduct this interview with Dr. Murray in the living room of his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The clinic was initially founded through an endowment from Morton Prince, who served as its first director. Morton Prince also came from a wealthy Brahmin family. Throughout Prince's brief term in the twilight of his career and the beginning of Murray's tenure, the clinic was seemingly entirely subsidized by the endowment, some of which came from Prince's wealthy lawyer Boston Brahmin brother. There were also a few anonymous donations. Early in Murray's tenure, the Committee on Industrial Fatigue also financed the clinic. During the Depression, Murray would ultimately turn to his connections at the Rockefeller Foundation, where he'd worked before Harvard, technically at the Institute for Medical Research, I believe. 
Murray secured first a short-term and then soon yearly monies from the foundation. Some of this last bit I've gotten from a dissertation titled Henry A. Murray and the Harvard Psychological Clinic, 1926-1938, that might be worth a read for the real M.K. heads. Chances are there are a couple diamonds in the rough there. I also feel duty-bound to point out that although Murray was apparently less of a proponent of traditional hypnosis than Dr. Prince, he was still directly involved in hypnotherapeutic practices. At the very least, during the early years of the clinic. This doesn't downplay Murray's involvement in MK efforts, not in the slightest. All it says is that he thought other methodologies were more effective, perhaps like the dizzying and dissociation-inducing verbal abuse Ted K. was subjected to, or the experimentation of psychoactive substances on students that Leary ran and Murray oversaw. Another fact about Dr. Henry Murray to keep in mind as we juxtapose him with the other early MK pioneers we're examining. During his time as director of the Harvard Psych Clinic in the 20s and 30s, Murray formulated a system of quote-unquote personology that is undergirded by his system of needs. Quoting from Wikipedia here, quote, Murray divided personology into five principles. 1. Cerebral physiology, rooted in the brain, governs all aspects of personality. 2. People act to reduce physiological and psychological tension to gain satisfaction, but do not strive to be tension-free and rather cycle between seeking excitement, activity, and movement in their lives, and then relaxing. 3. An individual's personality continues to develop over time, and is influenced by all of the events that occur over a person's lifetime. 4. Personality is not fixed, and it can change and progress. And five, each person has some unique characteristics and others which are shared by everyone. Murray's theory of personality is rooted in psychoanalysis, and the chief business and aim of personology is the reconstruction of the individual's past life experiences in order to explain their present behavior. 
to study personality. Murray used free association and dream analysis to bring unconscious material to light. End quote. Both personology and Murray's thematic apperception test, which he designed in the late 30s with his Harvard lover Christiana Morgan, informed Murray's work in devising tests determining the suitability of recruits for both British intelligence and then later the Office of Strategic Services. The TAT basically uses redirection to get a subject to reveal their underlying motivations, past experience, and personality through their interpretation of ambiguous situations. I haven't looked into it deeply, but it almost seems like a storytelling exercise of sorts. Murray first consulted with British Intel, helping them with their recruitment systems. He then wrote the official guide for the, quote, assessment of OSS personnel, end quote, for Bill Donovan and company during his time as a lieutenant colonel. Probably the two most notable aspects of Murray's wartime service are the assessment and the fact he assisted Walter Langer or Walter Langer with the psychoanalysis report of Hitler. We're going to get to it eventually and do a short dive into Langer's life, but one thing I want to state outright now is that it appears the most compelling pieces of evidence supporting the likelihood Hitler was hypnotized by Dr. Edmund Forster are the now declassified naval intelligence report by the Austrian Dr. Karl Kroner, in which he testifies to the veracity of the claims. Kroner was a co-worker of Forster's at Passavok. You also have the novel written by Ernst Weiss, entitled The Eyewitness, which was based in large part off of Hitler's medical files, and Langer and Murray's OSS report. Note that the Kroner memo and Langer's report were both authored in 1943, the very same year Estabrooks's Hypnotism was first published. Interesting. We'll return to the psychopathography of Hitler a little later. One other curious intersection. Murray's lover, Christiana Drummond Morgan, another Bostonian, was a Harvard-educated artist and amateur psychoanalyst. 
As we'll see a little later, Murray and Langer were hugely indebted to the work of both Freud and Jung. In the 1920s, Christiana traveled to Zurich to sit and work on her integration with the younger master. Quote, when Jung met Morgan, he considered her the manifestation of the perfect feminine, un femme inspiratrice, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, whose role was to act as a muse to great men. Jung conducted a seminar called the quote-unquote vision seminar, analyzing Morgan's many drawings and dreams, chronicling her archetypal encounters in her quest for psychological integration, end quote. I find these connections very interesting, as it's well known that Carl Jung adopted a more collaborative approach with the Nazis than those indebted to his theories would care to admit. The sharpest critics would even contend that he may have welcomed Nazism and Gleichschaltung, the Nazi regulations that enforced conformity to NS cultural values in civil society as it presented a means of overcoming his mentor and molding psychoanalysis in Europe in his theoretical image. I'm not saying that this is the case. I'm simply saying some have made those claims. The reality is that there was even an abortive attempt to have him tried during the Nuremberg trials. He obviously avoided prosecution, but seems worth pointing out. I'm not knowledgeable enough about Yoon's theories and life to give a take yet, but there's a chance we'll return to parsing his political statements and activities among psychoanalytic societies in Europe during the Nazi Party's reign once I do some more reading. Let's get back to that other Harvard Crimson, the hypnosis diehard that we had been discussing before we briefly switched to Murray. A few more bits and pieces. This Masonic Templar got married in Rome on July 20th, 1933. Wow, so cute, a 33 degree wedding! He was a member of the APA and Theta Chi. He also corresponded with Wild Bill Donovan during World War II, further illustrating the American Legion founder's role in laying the pre-MK-Ultra groundwork. A 1949 interview with Estabrooks contains further breadcrumbs, 
leading to the hypnofascists' role in formulating pre-MKUltra military mind control methods. Once again, World War I's impact is made explicit. According to George, soldiers suffering quote-unquote shell shock are the ideal hypnotic subjects. This article is also interesting, as it seems indicative of propaganda, either written by a CIA asset or else encouraged by the agency. The whole reason the interview even exists appears to have been to disseminate rumors that the Cardinal Menzenti's confession during his trial in communist Hungary was extracted under hypnotic duress. By the way, this Cardinal Josef Menzenti guy was a bit of a goof. He was a diehard monarchist. He took his ring-sucking ways to the grave, evidently. Granted, <laughs> sorry, ring sucking. Uh, granted, he did oppose fascism in Hungary to some degree, which saw him imprisoned for refusing to quarter soldiers during the Arrow Cross Party government. Although I'm not an expert on Minzenti, it seems he spent more of his life fighting against communists and socialists in Hungary than he did fascists. And I would venture out on a limb that his relationship with the fascists was slightly more amicable than it was with Hungarian communists, when he denounced the quote-unquote greens of the Arrow Cross Party, he compared them to communists. Classic monarchist bullshit. Even prior to World War II, when he was a Jude Law young Pope-style young bishop. <laughs> I don't actually know that. Um, I haven't seen pictures of young Minzenti. Uh, he, he might very well have been um, nothing like the young Pope at all. Um, but anyways, he bucked against multiple socialist governments in Hungary. Anyways, something that I found especially funny while doing some very light studying on Minzenti is the fact that he was evidently so bothered by communism in Hungary that he called the U.S. Embassy and tried to offer his services. This was before he was imprisoned and G.H. Estabrooks was interviewed about him. This cardinal was so bold in begging the United States to do something, anything, to intervene and prevent communism from taking root in Hungary that the embassy felt like they had to formally rebuke him which they did, shooting down the requests he'd made, which were, quote, 
simply not diplomatically proper or politically feasible, end quote. So what does this tell us about the fact that G.H. Estabrooks was called upon to defend this cardinal's honor in American papers, this prince primate who would have gladly wrecked the newly formed communist government in his home country from the safety of his cardinal palace and traded it in for American boots on the ground, if at all possible. Kinda get the sense. Both of them were rubbing elbows with American intelligence. About the phrase Prince Primate or Primate, Minzenti was such an arrogant knob that he insisted on being referred to by this ugly-ass handle, even after the new communist government had outlawed aristocratic titles. Reading a couple quotes here from the interview with uh, our guy Estabrooks in this article titled The Power of Hypnotism by Kenneth O. Smith from 49. Quote, Recently, for example, a Colgate University psychologist discussed the possible use of hypnotism by the Russians in connection with the quote-unquote confessions and courtroom behavior of Cardinal Minzenti and the Bulgarian Protestant clergyman. Dr. George H. Estabrooks, who is head of the Department of Psychology at Colgate and a nationally recognized authority on hypnotism, declared it would have been entirely possible to get these confessions by hypnotism, especially if preceded by brutal treatment, quote within the quote here, granting the brutality which would make it a chore to hypnotize the victim. Cardinal Minzenti, for instance, it would be another mere chore to get rapid control over the subject familiar to those who have studied the application of hypnotism to war, Dr. Estabrook says. Another quote, this done, Cardinal Minzenti could have been hypnotized as often as desired, for example, ten times in a single hour. The beginning of a psychic battering which I believe no human mind could endure. End of the Estabrooks quote. Recent news dispatches from Vienna quoted the cardinal's physician as saying the imprisoned primate now is a quote-unquote physical wreck. His condition is attributed to drugs and mistreatment suffered by the cardinal before his trial. Now, skipping ahead a bit, Estabrooks here describes the procedure he would follow if he had been the operator in this case. 
and if he were without scruple to use his wording. Quote, I would throw in everything I had to induce confusion, doubt, and uncertainty concerning the past, and I believe that within 24 hours I could reduce the subject to a state of disintegration. This done, I would reintegrate his personality along lines dictated by me. This damn dog, I'm sorry. Along lines dictated by me until he was thoroughly convinced that he was guilty of all the things I wished him to confess. The result would be that strange change in personality shown at the trial, and the same procedure could be used with the clergymen in Bulgaria. End quote. Men certainly can be hypnotized without their consent, the Colgate psychologist says. He adds that there is every reason to believe men actually can be hypnotized against their will by the use of drugs and a general breakdown of morale through strain and the loss of sleep. Big end quote. A little later on in this article, Dr. Astabrooks admits to uh, repeatedly hypnotizing one of his students without their consent. As you can see, in this 75-year-old article, Dr. Estabrooks outlined some of the basic methodologies that were exercised in both MKUltra and which continue to be utilized in inhumane interrogations in extrajudicial prisons like Gitmo today. This is the story of a 30-year search by U.S. intelligence agencies to perfect mind control. Some of those engaged in that search have agreed to talk about it for the first time. One said, I think every last one of us felt sorry to attempt this kind of thing. We knew we were crossing the line. The search would be endless. From brothels, an agent says, we learned a lot about human nature in the bedroom to the mystical rites of a magical mushroom ceremony performed by an Indian shaman, to a Spanish bull ring. The bull has had electrodes implanted in the brain and is controlled by a scientist. There would be victims. Oh, just... <laughs> One intelligence agency tried to peel this man's mind back to reveal its deepest secrets. I lived through it. I lived through it. This man worked on some of these programs. He would write of his work, it was fun, fun, fun. This is the story of the search for mind control. ABC News close-up, Mission Mind Control. Mark? Man. It's been ages. 
can I buy you? Allow me. Two Michelob lights. Michelob makes a light beer? Perfect. The good taste of Michelob light. Mrs. Cooper, huh? I need help. Oh. With all these different dog foods, I don't know what kind to feed him. Dry, soft... Honey, it's I... not the form. It's the formula. The Cycle 2 formula has just what dogs in their active years need to help stay healthy. <laughs> and happy. With Cycle, I know what to feed him. Now get Cycle 2 in 25-pound bags. It was the Cold War, and especially the trial of Joseph Cardinal Menzenti, who was forced to testify in a Hungarian court that he was a spy. And then later, the Korean War, with the coerced and mainly fraudulent confessions of American servicemen. My information took place on the... That would spark intense interest in intelligence circles about brainwashing. The CIA secretly commissioned a study of communist brainwashing methods at the Cornell University Medical Center. A leader of that study was Dr. Lawrence Hinkle. He explains first the Russian method of controlling and breaking a person. Absolutely isolated from everyone else with one man whose job it is to get you to write the extent to which you are a criminal. In this setting, you can get people to do most anything, do you see? Because you don't have to lay a hand on And by the time you get through and you go up before the judge, the fellow says, were you a spy? He says, yes, I was a spy. The, the, the Chinese never really had this kind of a state police system. They would get him in, and all this fellow does is ask you to write, rewrite, rewrite, and talk to him about your whole life. He graduated from pilot training in 1949. While the purpose of the study was to find out about communist brainwashing techniques, CIA documents show that the agency was interested in developing mind control methods of its own to precondition and control Chinese living in this country to be sent back to their homeland as CIA agents. What do you think they were looking for? Well, I think they, no, they weren't looking for, they weren't looking for agents or anything like that. Yet the agency's perception of the work you were doing, in CIA documents uh, we have examined, yeah. it says that the, the, the project that was being done here, yeah. uh, they intended to use everything learned about the new agents to induce them to, quote, to perform acts of a complex, purposeful nature. Yeah, but that was the never done. The effects of which may be out of keeping with the individual's that previous behavior. That sort of thing was never done. Those people were not, uh, that, that was, when they first came here, the first people they sent up to see us, do you see, were, uh, were operational type people from the CIA with some rather, rather wild ideas. Okay, this is their perception of it, if, if I could no, just continue. No, it wasn't their perception of it either. No, it wasn't. Dangerous to his being, contrary yeah, to any previous that, consciously expressed see, intentions and interests, here, contrary to the good no. of the individual, and subversive to the goals yeah, for which he is consciously working. I understand working. all this talk. But the situation was, you see, those things were never done because of wise people on both sides. We were not able to do this and are interested in it. They and, were, though. Uh, some of the low-level people were, but the high-level people were not. But documents clearly show that the CIA was attempting to develop agents over whom they had as much control as possible. Agents who would perform tasks contrary to their own good. Normally conditioned American has been trained to kill and then to have no memory of having killed. His brain has not only been washed, as they say, it has been dry cleaned. <laughs> Is a Manchurian candidate, controlled by others, to do things against his will, possible? I would say the answer is yes, but there are many qualifications to that. 
Dr. Milton Klein, a psychologist, a clinical and experimental hypnotist, and unpaid consultant to the CIA. The qualifications would be the subject selected to produce the kind of behavior that you wish, the amount of time, the procedures that are utilized, and the motivations of the people who are designing, executing, and administering the procedures. You're asking whether an individual can be, under hypnosis, influenced, coerced, persuaded, shaped to perform an antisocial act or a destructive act or an act of violence. My answer would be yes. In 1943, Estabrooks published a book called Hypnotism, in which he not only alludes to his own military hypnotic work, but basically outlines the procedures for the creation of Manchurian candidates and super spies. What's immensely intriguing about Estabrook's book is the fact that the text ends with a chapter on Hitler and hypnosis, especially Hitler's mass hypnotizing abilities. This is partially why I've decided to cover Estabrook's in minor detail at this point. But first, we need to read a bit more from Colin Ross's breakdown of Estabrook's lengthy military and intelligence collaborations and hypnotic experimentations on humans. I'm splicing up a bunch of excerpts here for chronology's sake. Quote, Dr. Estabrooks is the only psychiatrist or psychologist to have claimed in public that he created Manchurian candidates. In an August 24, 1935 letter to Dr. Estabrooks, from the office of the Chief of Staff of the War Department, the correspondent notes communications received from Dr. Estabrooks by the Military Intelligence Division dating back to 1924. This is confirmed again in a letter from Military Intelligence Division G2's Colonel Percy G. Black, dated February 2nd, 1945. Dr. Estabrooks also corresponded with other branches of the government, including the Office of Indian Affairs, undated, the Public Health Service, May 13th, 1942, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, August 11, 1959, and the Attorney General, September 2, 1959. He also wrote to Winston Churchill, to whom William Stevenson reported, end quote. I've already detailed that Estabrooks and Donovan corresponded, so we'll skip that save to state that one correspondence between them is dated January 1st, 1942, 
which predates the transformation of the COI, Coordinator of Information, into the OSS. Quoting again, Other correspondence with intelligence agencies includes letters of May 8, 1935, to the Chief Signal Officer, United States Army, November 13, 1935, from headquarters of the U.S. Marine Corps, July 19, 1938, from R.S. Holmes, Director of Naval Intelligence, September 21, 1939, to Colonel R.V. Reed, or Red, at the British Embassy in Washington, October 7, 1940, to Superintendent E.W. Bavin of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, January 26, 1942, from John V. Hinkle at Military Intelligence Division G2, and August 29, 1942, from Paul Rath at Edgewood Arsenal, end quote. So this is all instructive. We're not done yet. I'm going to go on and detail further correspondence between Estabrooks and officials and psychiatrists involved in MKUltra, but as you can see, my argument that MKUltra was precipitated by World War I-era hypnotherapy is perfectly encapsulated in the person of G. H. Estabrooks. As we continue to see, there's this almost archetypal pattern where the various 20th century proponents of hypnosis and mind control first endure the horrors of World War I and then are hypnotized themselves while convalescing, oftentimes serving as their first exposure to hypnosis. A slight variant on this would be the physicians and psychiatrists who turned to hypnosis to treat war neurotic veterans during the Great War and then continued to sing its praises in the succeeding decades. Another quote, Dr. Estabrooks was accepted as a contractor by the War Department on February 20, 1942. On July 13, 1939, he received correspondence from W.S. Anderson, Director of Naval Intelligence. On December 4, 1953, he addressed the Counterintelligence Corps School at Fort Holabird. T.F. Hoffman of the Corps told Dr. Estabrooks in a letter dated November 18, 1953, that the Corps was studying hypnotism, in which Estabrooks describes the hypnotic courier. End quote. So we see that Estabrooks was already contracting with the War Department 
before hypnotism hit the shelves, which indicates to me that the government permitted its publication, begging the question, what did they get out of it? Did it serve to test public reaction to these methodologies? Is it a limited hangout, admitting the effectiveness of the use of hypnotic techniques in espionage while downplaying the degree to which they were already in use among the American military? Something to think over. Ross also lists correspondence between Estabrooks and Ernest Bavin, a British national living in Canada who served in the 1st Battalion, Canadian Field Artillery, in the Canadian Expeditionary Force during World War I and worked with various police departments before and after highlighting the intersection of law enforcement and hypnosis, which we'll dig into a bit in these episodes. Bavin worked under Bill Stevenson in New York in the famed Office of British Security Coordination during World War II. As Ross notes, Bill Stevenson and Wild Bill Donovan worked closely together. Stevenson was also introduced to J. Edgar Hoover by the boxer Gene Tunney, who would later help to recruit Manchurian candidate Candy Jones. This is the story of the search for mind control. ABC News close-up, Mission Mind Control. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. But these records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. They tell pieces of it. This is a story that has been told in bits and pieces. This is an attempt to pull most of it together. We know we don't have the full story. We do, however, have some striking new revelations and insights. The story begins here just off the nation's front yard, the mall. The buildings behind me were the headquarters for the World War II Office of Strategic Services. It was here that the first halting steps toward mind control began. The shaper and molder of OSS was General Wild Bill Donovan. He said of his group's work, we may have made mistakes, but we were not afraid to try things that were never done before. In this anything-goes atmosphere, Donovan appointed this man, Stanley Lovell, a Boston industrialist, to break new ground in many scientific and technical fields. Donovan called Lovell his Dr. Moriarty, after the fiendish professor in Sherlock Holmes. Lovell liked the name and posed for this Saturday Evening Post photo. He later wrote of his OSS job that it was, quote, to stimulate the peck's bad boy beneath the surface of every American scientist and to say to him, Throw all of your normal law-abiding concepts out of the window. Here's a chance to raise merry hell. It was in this atmosphere that the search for mind control began. This bizarre man would be an active participant in that search over the next two decades. 
His name is George White, an OSS captain who had formerly been with the Bureau of Narcotics. In his diary, seen here publicly for the first time, White left a legacy of the darker side of American intelligence work. He received his early OSS training at the British-run school at Oshawa, Canada, the same school where Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, was trained. White referred to the school in his diaries as the Oshawa School of Mayhem and Murder. Mike Burke, former OSS colleague of White's and now president of Madison Square Garden Center. Very compelling fellow, uh, mysterious fellow, almost mystical fellow. He was fascinating because you didn't, you knew something about him, but not, all, not enough about him to really get a fix on him. Uh, he also knew a great deal about the swifter elements of society, the gamier side of life. And, uh, and he was very impressive in his technical knowledge of, of the underworld, so to speak. He said, one of, one of our men gets beat up. He says, you have to act real fast and teach these guys a lesson. Charles Siragusa, a former narcotics officer and friend of White's. He thought, come around, he says, and break your kneecaps. And with that, one guy laughed. And George would always have a little, uh, little billy with him. And this one guy sort of snickered. George White turned around and whapped him across the neck with it. Then he picked up a pool stick and started beating everybody up. He made his point. And he made his point. George White was not a man of understatement or subtleties. His boss at OSS, Stanley Lovell, referred to him as deadly and dedicated. In this note from White's diaries, it says, call Lovell regarding TD. TD was a rather transparent cover for truth drug. George White worked with the truth drug committee here at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in the nation's capital. They experimented with mescaline, scopolamine, and marijuana on unwitting victims. The committee soon learned there was no easy panacea, no truth drug at this stage. But White and later colleagues would not stop trying. The goal remained the same. As this 1952 CIA memo says, the aim is controlling an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against such fundamental laws of nature as self-preservation. J. Edgar Hoover is another figure that Estabrooks had a lengthy, decade-spanning correspondence with. According to Ross, from at least 1936 to 1962, quote, Hoover sent FBI personnel to Colgate College college or university, that might be a typo, not sure, to meet with Estabrooks, sent him copies of his speeches, and acknowledged upcoming visits by Estabrooks to FBI headquarters. On June 25, 1937, Hoover acknowledged receipt of a, quote, Current news clipping depicting experimental use of hypnotism by Dr. A. Herbert Cantor in the Ohio State Penitentiary at Columbus, end quote. Drug interrogation and hypnosis experiments were conducted on Ohio prison inmates under MKUltra Subproject 39. 
The archives also contain letters from Estabrooks to other FBI personnel. In a letter from July 23, 1937, J. Edgar Hoover acknowledges a recommendation by Dr. Estabrooks that the FBI visit Dr. Hudson Hoagland, Department of Biology, Clark University, Worcester, Massachusetts. The Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology was the site of MKUltra Subproject 8, and Dr. Hoagland wrote an obituary for Dr. Ewan Cameron, contractor on MKUltra Subproject 68. Dr. Hoagland, who himself worked at the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology, was also a co-author of a paper on LSD with Dr. Robert Hyde. Dr. Hyde received top-secret clearance for his work on MKUltra subprojects 8, 10, and 63. J. Edgar Hoover was aware of MKUltra because he received correspondence from the director of the CIA about it. We'll be talking with a local teenager who won a gold medal at the Pan Am Games. Join us at 11. Reach for the sun. Hello, sunshine. Reach for the sun. Hello, sunshine. Hello, Mountain Dew. Nothing else tastes or feels quite like Mountain Dew or goes down as smooth like a soft breeze on a lazy afternoon. Reach for the sun. By far, the most chilling experiments we have uncovered took place at this Gothic estate called Raven's Crag, halfway up Mount Royal in Montreal. It houses the Allen Memorial Institute of Psychiatry of McGill University. It was here that the CIA funded a series of experiments, severe experiments. The work was done by the Institute's then director, Dr. Ewan Cameron. It is the closest experimentation to brainwashing yet disclosed. His work, unprecedented in psychiatry, consisted of three areas which he called sleep therapy, psychic driving, and the ultimate depatterning. Dr. Maurice Dangier, current head of the Allen Memorial Institute. In his uh, psychic driving, uh, so-called uh, type of, of therapy, he would give the patient intensive uh, electric treatment in order to make the patient uh, regress deeply, uh, become forgetful, and then he would uh, attempt to implant new ideas uh, in the mind of the patient. Now, to a layman, it would appear that Dr. Cameron was trying to take the slate and wipe it clean, the slate being the mind. In other words, brainwashing. Exactly, that's a very good comparison. Brainwashing. Yes, to life. Dr. Estabrooks was also very well connected in academia. He corresponded with Aldous Huxley and his brother, Sir Julian Huxley. 
in a symposium sponsored at Colgate College by Dr. Estabrooks on April 7, 1962, Aldous Huxley gave an evening talk at 8 p.m. entitled Human Potentialities. Big end quote. Speaking of symposiums, another quote here. Big quote. Dr. Estabrooks ran a symposium for the U.S. Army Intelligence School at Fort Holabird in Baltimore on April 5th through the 7th in 1963. Estabrooks invited MKUltra Subproject 84 contractor Dr. Martin Orne to speak at a symposium on hypnosis at Colgate College on April 1st and 2nd, 1960. The papers presented at this symposium were later published as Hypnosis, Current Problems, edited by Dr. Estabrooks. The title of Dr. Orne's chapter in this volume is Antisocial Behavior and Hypnosis. In this chapter, Dr. Orne references Dr. Estabrook's 1943 book, Hypnotism, which describes the hypnotic courier or super-spy. Dr. Orne's research for his chapter in Hypnosis, Current Problems, was supported by Contract AF-49, in parentheses 638, and then the number 728. Okay, that's, I don't, I don't understand that numbering system, but uh, this contract from the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. Dr. Orne's colleague and co-author, Ronald E. Shore, Ph.D., is referred to as Ron in an August 22, 1961 letter from Dr. Estabrooks. The research described in Dr. Shore's chapter in the book was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, a subdivision of the National Institute of Health, MKUltra subprojects 36, 45, 55, 62, 117, and 125, the Public Health Service, MKUltra subproject 36, that uh, previously mentioned Air Force contract, and the CIA cutout, the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. Among the colleagues thanked in Dr. Shore's chapter are three members of the Scientific and Professional Advisory Board of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Dr. Martin Orne, Dr. Ulrich Neisser, and Emily F. Kuroda, now Emily Kuroda Orne. Other speakers at the 1960 Hypnosis Symposium included two of the other leading experts on hypnosis of the 20th century, Dr. Arist Hilgard and Dr. Milton Erickson. 
Dr. Erickson returned to Colgate College to talk at the Colgate University Symposium on Hypnosis on April 5th through 7th, 1962. Big end quote. Dr. Erickson is a figure that we'll hear more about eventually. You can bet your ass. That's more than enough detail regarding Estabrooks's military, intel, medical, and academic connections to illustrate the degree to which he was snagged up in the uh, MKUltra web, giving us ample reason to believe his claims that he was directly involved in the brainwashing and creation of mind-controlled couriers and spies during World War II and onwards. The fact that he was already corresponding with military intelligence in the mid-twenties serves as further evidence of my argument that these practices were already being formulated during the Great War and the years immediately following. A last note regarding his career. This bit's the darkest. Colin Ross claims that Estabrooks experimented on children, and not just a few. We're talking a lot of kids. First, at Rome State School in Rome, New York, with the approval of the superintendent in 1935, he conducted similar experiments at St. John's Orphan Asylum and the House of the Good Shepherd, what appears to have been an orphanage in Utica. Per Ross, the director of the Utica Community Chest wrote to Estabrooks and promised a supply of 50 children aged 9 through 12, which would be facilitated by a sister Callista. Furthermore, Estabrooks even wrote directly to J. Edgar Hoover about the prospect of, quote, using hypnosis to interrogate juvenile delinquents and applied to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare for a research grant, end quote. In 1936, he even wrote to Hoover about the potentials of hypnosis in combination with psychoactive substances. Unbelievable. Remember the interview that I found with Estabrooks titled The Power of Hypnotism? In it, he admits to repeatedly hypnotizing one of his students without consent, as well as a bridge partner that he would play the game bridge with frequently. Seems this non-consensual hypnotizing of people wasn't an uncommon occurrence for the doctor. Stray thought, it really is insane the degree to which Harvard was a MKUltra hotbed. In recent episodes, we've touched on how Murray, Estabrooks, Langer, and Walter Schreiber's 
anesthesiologist buddy Dr. Henry Beecher of the human experiments at Camp King, remember him, were all at Harvard in the 1920s and 30s. You'll remember Dr. Beecher from a previous Lodge and Lot installment. Okay, as for Estabrooks's pre-MK text, Hypnotism, it begins with a chapter called The Induction of Hypnotism. A little later on, Estabrooks unpacks post-hypnotic suggestion and auto-suggestion, outlining various techniques. Beyond the chapters that list his hypnotic methods, of most interest to our present inquiry would be the final three, hypnotism in crime, hypnotism in warfare, and this man Hitler. In the opening chapter, Estabrooks breaks down how the hypnotist can plunge their subject into an increasingly dissociated trance state through the use of suggestion. The idea is to begin by hypnotizing individual parts of the body through the ideomotor phenomenon before working up to inducing quote-unquote somnambulism. The phrase he uses to describe the state in which a person's unconscious has so taken over to the point that you can suggest that they do something outlandish and they won't have any recollection of it afterwards. This is why the hypnotist might begin by telling you to relax your eye muscles, for example. These discrete bits of suggestion serve to both test the subject's susceptibility and coax the unconscious out, so to speak. Although Estabrooks maintains that not every person is equally susceptible to suggestion, he is adamant that everyone can be hypnotized. In later parts of hypnotism, he details more refined techniques for increasing a subject's susceptibility. This is where things like sleep deprivation, torture, psychoactive substances, and trauma come to mind. As McGowan notes in the introduction of PTK, Estabrooks basically theorized and implemented the MK protocol of splitting a person's core personality so that one or more alters can be controlled. Dave lists numerous textual examples from the book where Estabrooks euphemistically hints that trauma is, quote, a form of hypnotism. He also includes a quote where George writes that multiple personalities are, quote, caused by a form of hypnotism in the first place. We will see that emotional shock produces exactly the same results as hypnotism. End quote. And finally, 
Estabrook's claims that, quote, everyone can be thrown into the deepest state of hypnotism by the use of what I termed the Russian method, no holds barred, deliberate disintegration of the personality by psychic torture, end quote. A great example of how Estabrook's both formulated American MK practices and ran interference and cover for existing processes and programs by presenting them as techniques employed by the Russians. In the chapter, This Man Hitler, Estabrooks begins by describing an example of how mass hypnosis and groupthink can occur, especially in mob situations, beginning with a hypothetical where one of your neighbors suspects another neighbor is a German spy, and you end up getting sucked into the lynch mob that's decided to kill the guy based on hearsay. The point being that in situations such as these, the more that one is able to stand apart from the crowd and not fall under its sway, the less suggestible they are and less vulnerable to hypnotism, and vice versa. Now, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. This is crazy speculation, but on a cultural propaganda level, I wonder whether a partial purpose of Estabrooks's obviously state-sanctioned project was to present an argument for the Nazi regime as a form of mass hypnosis in anticipation of the eventual American assimilation of Nazi spy networks, scientists, and industrialists. Basically, to soften the landing of paperclip by downplaying the culpability of the individual spies, scientists, and bureaucrats that would prove useful to U.S. hegemonic interests in the struggle against the USSR. Like, oh, the little guys, like Werner von Braun, aren't to blame because they were just dragged along in this moment of mass hypnosis and hysteria. Do you think that could be the uh, subliminal propagandizing message of Estabrooks's chapter, This Man Hitler? Perhaps. Setting that aside, though, Estabrooks details how Hitler has hypnotized the German masses through the use of emotional contagion 
restriction of the field of attention, the fear and paranoia seeded by the Gestapo and concentration camps, and modern technologies like radio. This is a theme that we'll see reflected in a fictional figure we're going to discuss in a installment that's going to follow this one very closely. Estabrooks also points out the impact of dramatics, stagecraft, and aesthetics on Hitler's hypnotic speechmaking, specifically referencing a strategy that Erich Jan Hanussen supposedly gifted the Fuhrer, that of Hitler giving his speeches at night when the human psyche is more susceptible to suggestion. One of the tools in the occultist's bag of tricks that he shared with Hitler. The last two instrumental factors that Estabrooks identifies in Hitler's mass hypnotism are social sanction and the release of inhibitions, which swirled together with hypnotic suggestion and gave rise to feelings of omnipotence among the German NS masses. All right. I've also realized that I've never explicitly stated this. Just in case you're unfamiliar with MKUltra, it was one project amid a family of military and intelligence-run projects that aimed to weaponize hypnosis and psychoactive substances for a variety of espionage, counter-espionage, and behavioral modification purposes. Broadly speaking, all of the attendant projects and sub-projects served the ultimate purpose of reifying and reinforcing American hegemony and military might in the Cold War period, as well as uh, control and strategies of tension domestically, closer to home. MKUltra and its post-World War II predecessors were a part of a PSYOP arms race against the Russians, Koreans, and Chinese. See the disingenuous stories about Manchurian candidates that were disseminated during the Korean War, which served to provide justification for these programs, when in actuality, the U.S. had already been conducting experiments aimed at creating Manchurian candidates for years, if not decades. Just so you know, the first ever English use of the phrase brainwashing was in an article by Edward Hunter in the Miami News, printed in 1950, a year after that Estabrook's article that we were reading earlier. 
The article described the purported mind control of American POWs by their Chinese captors. It is essential to know that Edward Hunter himself was not only an avowed anti-communist, but likely a CIA plant. By stating this, I'm not asserting that the USSR and Maoist China weren't also engaging in mind control efforts. Let's not be naive. But I do think that U.S. narratives about Manchurian candidates were likely contrived, serving the dual purpose of providing justification for the American intelligence operations already underway, while also fear-mongering to maintain that Cold War-era mass mentality of unimaginable danger from foreign communists around every corner. As you know, one of the goals of this series is to gradually compile evidence supporting my argument that these military and intelligence practices were informed by, or even directly spurred, by World War I military hypnotherapy. We'll continue along this track in the next installments. Ultimately, these investigations will inevitably bring us face-to-face with the Nazi influence on MKUltra, Artichoke, and Bluebird, of course, via Operation Paperclip and the frequent assertion that the Nazis were peerless innovators when it came to the weaponization of hypnosis, drugs, and mind control. I mean, we've already started to cover this to some degree, and there will be plenty of it in the next installment. If you are in fact unfamiliar with MKUltra and or are doubting hypnotism's centrality in these top-secret, agency-run, or funded behavioral modification experiments, let me tell you this before I end. Citing the 1977 Joint Session Hearing on Project MKUltra before the Select Committee on Intelligence and the Subcommittee on Health and Scientific Research. There were eight subprojects in the MKUltra umbrella that studied hypnosis's utility for mind controlling purposes, two of which involved the hypnotization of test subjects under the influence of drugs. I would also dutifully recommend Dave McGowan's program to kill. Lastly, a note about the adjacent text called the CIA Doctors that we've referenced pretty extensively today. It's one I'm personally undecided on, as I'm not crazy about the author Colin Ross M.D.'s downplaying of the agency's culpability in the various human experiments that were conducted or underwritten by the CIA. But it is a very useful resource nonetheless, and is jam-packed with 
um, helpful information and citations. Containing a rundown of many of the prominent psychologists, psychiatrists, and researchers who have been implicated. Just be cognizant of the fact that he downplays the CIA's culpability and praises American intelligence throughout the introduction before you get into it, which should obviously raise an eyebrow or two. Well, that's where we're going to close for today. So grateful for all the time we've spent together. Give those Harvard Crimson classes of the 1920s a wide berth. Stay critical, critters. See you when I see ya. Give up. 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 Give up.